Chapter fourteen of Mad Barbara by Warwick Deeping. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter fourteen. My Lord of Gore's coach carried Anne Purcell and her daughter back to Westminster, for the gathering at the house at Bushy had dispersed prematurely, owing to sundry regrettable differences of opinion that had arisen between the three elder women. My Lord himself travelled cityward with the Purcells as though discountenancing Mrs. Catherine Gore, who had been spirited by Lady Marden and her daughter away in her coach to Kensington. For the quarrel, such as it was, had originated in Mrs. Kate's deafness and her utter lack of reasonable discretion, since her loud and irritable tongue had not only set the two elder ladies by the ears, but had driven even her stately brother to a tempestuous ruffling of his dignity. The repartee had verged on coarseness, for Mrs. Catherine Gore was the most exasperating person to argue with on the face of God's earth. Her deafness, exaggerated for the occasion, made her impregnable both against weight of metal and sharpness of wit, and she could retaliate in the most violent and acrid fashion, pretending all the time that she had mistaken the rival disputant's meaning. Thus, when my lord had persisted with some heat and an impressive dogmatism that his sister painted her prejudices too vividly, Mrs. Kate had seized the chance of flinging an explosive retort into the midst of the party. If my lady Purcell had said that my lady Marden painted her face, it was no business of her brother's to repeat it, and that only fools made mischief wantonly. And it may be imagined that a few such sweet misapplications of the truth had ruined the tranquillity of her brother's house. John Gore and the two gentlemen had ridden over earlier that morning, for the sea-captain had business at Deptford that concerned the men who had lain with him in a Barbary prison. Nor were the three in my lord's coach sympathetically arranged. There were three angles to the diagram, and though two of them may have been in geometrical agreement, the third spoiled the symmetry of the whole human proposition for Barbara had never seemed more moody or distraught. She sat like a figure of fate with her great eyes looking into the distance, and her face blank and impassive to any sallies from my lord. An atmosphere of dreariness and of apathy seemed to emanate from her, an atmosphere so sluggish and sincere that it blighted the two elders, who would have been buxom enough if they had been alone. The lord and the lady exchanged glances from time to time. They were wise in their generation, nor were they ready to be displeased at the little romance that appeared to be developing under their noses. The girl had an eccentric way of accepting homage, yet they understood her to be a queer piece of morose comeliness. Nor had she the habit of simpering like other women. Stephen Gore smiled and looked with surreptitious shrewdness at the mother. Pauvre petite. La maladie des femmes. Jean et Jeannette. They laughed and glanced, each of them, out of their respective windows, not noticing the dull gleam in the girl's dark eyes. Meanwhile, the Don John of their love prophecies had changed his nag for a fast wherry on the Thames, and had landed at Deptford Stairs before my lord's coach had come within sight of the towers of Westminster. Picking his way amid the sea-lumber of the place, he hunted out a tavern known as the Eight Bells, 
a tavern with great tipsy tables, and little windows like blinking eyes, and rough benches along the wall. Within, a parlour full of tobacco smoke, black beans, and copper-coloured faces that seemed to conjure up all the adventuresomeness of the wild life at sea. It was a corner of the world where men about a winter fire might tell tales of treasure, of sea-fights, and all the coarse, quaint, crudely-coloured romance of the Spanish seas. The mere words were magical to a roving spirit. Pieces of eight, culverins, great rivers with strange names, treasure-houses full of ingots of gold, the far islands of the buccaneers. There men should tell tales of wine drunk under tropical moons, of mulatto women in bright garments, of Indian girls, of prize-money and the smell of powder, and the salt sweat of the bustling seas. The whole strong perfume of that adventurous life seemed to permeate the shadows of that low-beamed room. With Jasper of the guns turning his hawk's eye from man to man, and talking of the days when the captain should sail the ship that they had already seen and coveted. Ha! And Jasper's face grew fierce and happy. They would sweep down the channel with sails whiter than Dover cliffs, and all their cannons sparkling like ingots of gold. There would be pikes bristling in the arm-racks around the masts, the hissing of grindstone as the men sharpened their cutlasses, full sail past Tangier, and a lookout in the foretop for any heathen devil that dared show a nose in the open sea. Even a few piratical jests would not come amiss. Jasper had pictured it all to his mates after they had seen and coveted old man Hollis's ship, the Wolf, lying at anchor in midstream. Just the girl to carry the captain in her lap. They would wipe out the smell of that Barbary prison and set the brass boys bellowing like bulls of Bashan. They tumbled up from the benches of the eight bells when the figure in the red coat showed at the doorway. Jasper, old sea-wolf, with ringed ears and buckram skin, grinned joyfully, proud with the pride of an old Norse pirate. There was a chair by the rough table for John Gore. He sat down there, while the men formed a ring round him, while Jasper, of the guns, said his say. "'We have found you a ship, Captain, twenty brass cannon and wings like a seagull. All her tackle new as a girl's stockings after Michaelmas.' John Gore looked at them all, a little sadly, like a man who must speak bad news. He had picked up Jasper's pipe, and was tracing an imaginary pattern on the table. The sailors would have sworn that it was a love-knot, had they been able to see inside the captain's head. "'Don't tempt me, Jasper, my man. When you go to sea again, it won't be under my flag.' Bluntly, yet with a great kindness for them, that could not be hid, he blew to the winds all Jasper's visions of judgment. Not for a year at least would he sail on a second voyage. The big man regarded him sorrowfully, as though listening to the news of a Dutch victory. The sailors looked at one another and shifted uneasily from foot to foot. A pipe was tapped softly, even dismally, on the heel of a sea-boot. One worthy could find no other method of expression than that of firing a stream of tobacco-juice into a pile of sawdust in a corner. They were like so many dismasted hulks, 
with the spirit out of them so many disappointed children jasper's enthusiasm broke into the last flare such a little dancing devil captain and her guns all like new pins she ought to carry you and no one else the man in the red coat still drew patterns on the table look you my men don't count on serving under me i am high and dry for a year or more you are too tough to rot here in taverns my business is to see good men of mine afloat in a good ship that's like you captain we did not fight the sparhawk for nothing did we you served me well i mean to serve you will you go to sea as picked men in a king's ship jasper looked at his mates first over one shoulder and then over the other that's the next best he said bluntly well then i'll make it my affair i can't keep my fingers off a gun or a rope for long sir that's god's truth the smell of the tar sticks lads mr pepys and the duke if necessary shall be my men i would rather see fellows of mine in the best ship that carries the king's flag than rolling in some dirty ketch between dover and dunkirk john gore called for a tankard of ale and they pledged healths together in the tavern of the eight bells leaving them a purse of guineas as largesse he returned to his boat with jasper and his mates acting as a kind of state guard to the waterside if god won't have a man the devil will that's an old proverb captain and the king's a better master than old nick with some such philosophy jasper looked lovingly on john gore as he stood on the water steps and took his leave far down the stream the mast of old man hollis's ship seemed to beckon them unavailingly toward the brightness of spanish seas at the admiralty offices a plump buxom bustling gentleman received john gore with great good will something of a dandy with protuberant eyes that appeared to have grown weak with straining at everything that was to be seen mr pepys bundled himself gladly from the multifarious responsibilities of office and let loose all his heartiness in the service of a friend it was impossible to be jovial or to enjoy a gossip where so many detestable quills were scratching and scolding over parchment and paper the dinner-table was the secretary's inspiration mrs pepys would be infinitely contented at the thought of an old friend dining off the new silver plate john gore and the ubiquitous but yet lovable busybody departed dinnerward arm in arm at home the fair saint michel appeared triste and a little out of temper her husband's hospitality was often inconsistently impulsive there are moments even in the best households when the joints are scraggy and the puddings like country cousins homely and out of fashion mr pepys kissed his wife with excellent unction let fall a hint that he had seen a new gown at the new exchange and compelled the domestic son to shine by the sheer vitality of his good humour jack gore praised his sherry and frankly confessed that he had a favour to ask mr pepys chuckled so many people always appeared to be in like case his sherry was the finest sherry in the three kingdoms on such occasions some of these suppliants well that was a purely private affair and he gave a confidential and deliberate wink that suggested that he was popular most revered jack quoth he you throw a request in a man's face like a twenty-pound shot into a dutchman's hull 
There is just the polite spark at the touch-hole to give one warning, your urbanity concerning the sherry. Nonetheless, I like it. Candor makes me feel quite fat. You will get these fellows of mine well berthed. All captains and lieutenants in three weeks. I would have you come and see some of the scrofulous schemers who wriggle in and smirk at me most days of the month. They are so polite, so considerate in suggesting how I may be made a fool and a rogue. And sea captains, sir, seem to be the fated husbands of pretty wives. It makes a Prometheus of me at times, I assure you. And as for Mrs. Pepys here, somehow she always has a sneaking preference for the mild and simple bachelors. The secretary's wife stared hard at her husband's embroidered vest. The direction of such a glance is considered disconcerting when applied to gentlemen who are approaching maturity. "'Sam is always a fool where women are concerned,' she said, with an autocratic poise of the head. "'There now, sir, and I married her. How can she speak such truths? The more pie. Nonsense apart, Jack, I will see these men of yours well placed.' What with chattering on his own affairs and questioning John Gore on his voyage, Mr. Pepys appeared to forget that there was such an incubus as his majesty's business. He suggested a drive in the park. His own coach, so he said, had eclipsed the Mancini's, as Hortense had eclipsed the Breton Rose. Then there was Nell to be seen in a new play at the King's, but he would not wink at her. Mrs. Pepys should see to that. And their best bedroom stood empty. A man who had so much cosmopolitan gossip to impart could not be suffered to call a link-boy that night. They could sit out together on the leads after supper, and talk till the stars blinked and they both fell a-yawning. The end of all this amiable bustle was that John Gore slept between Mr. Pepys's best sheets, and spent a great part of the following day with him, looking at his books and plate, drinking his wine, and hearing his new maid sing one of the secretary's old songs. For Mr. Pepys was such a bubble of mirth, such a book of shrewd sense, such a register of anecdotes, that his loquacity and his infinite good fellowship made even romance linger in its onrush for an hour. Late shadows were floating down the river before John Gore escaped from the secretary's weak eyes and stalwart tongue. He had some small affairs of his own to attend to in the city and at the new exchange in the Strand some new harness at a saddler's, stockings and shirts at a silk mercer's, a case of long pistols at a gunsmith's in a street near the new exchange. The pistol stocks were inlaid with ivory and mother-of-pearl, and he had left them with the smith for an hour, to have his name scrawled upon the barrels. A coffee-house and a gazette filled up his leisure, and not being a man afraid of carrying a parcel through the public streets, he returned to the gunsmith's shop and went westward with the pistols under his arm. He took some of the quieter ways past Charing Cross, where the city and the fields met, in scattered gardens and narrow lanes. Apple boughs, already hung with fruit, drooped alluringly over high brick walls. Here and there came the scent of rosemary and sage, of clove pinks, marjoram and lavender, and through the bars of some iron gate you might see great sheaves of sweet peas in bloom, or torch-lilies stiff and quaint, or rose-trees with the flowers falling and turning brown. 
In one of these narrow lanes, with a high wall upon one side and a thorn hedge upon the other, John Gore met the last soul on earth he expected to meet at such a moment, Barbara Purcell, alone, not even followed by a servant. However dreamily John Gore's thoughts may have lingered amid the stately walks of my lord's house at Bushy, he was surprised to see her before him, in the flesh. She was dressed quietly, with a cloak over her shoulders, and the hood turned forward to cover her hair, so that she looked more like a shopkeeper's daughter than a young madam from the atmosphere of St. James's. There was no turning back for either of them in that narrow lane, even if either had desired to escape a meeting. John Gore saw her flush momentarily, with a glitter of something in the eyes wonderfully like anger. How symbolical that hedged-in pathway seemed to her, a pathway where fate could not be eluded, and where death followed her like a shadow. "'I never thought to see you here.' She looked at him darkly with her sombre eyes, eyes that made him think of watchfulness and waiting. "'Sometimes I come here and walk in the lanes. They are quiet, and one is not stared at.' "'You should not walk here, though, when it is getting dusk.' "'Oh, I am not afraid.' The unfeigned earnestness of the man betrayed a depth beyond the shallows of mere words. Others may be afraid for you. These paths that seem so sweet and green are often the night tracks of the vermin of the streets. Their eyes met and appeared to exchange a challenge. I have never been troubled here. God save the chance that you ever should. We can walk back together now that we have met. She had no excuse with which to parry his grave frankness. Had life promised another meaning, she might have suffered herself to be touched by the message that his manhood seemed to utter. And to John Gore, walking at her side, the rose-trees that had bloomed in the quaint gardens were budding again into crimson flame. The high hedgerows were full of golden light, caught and held in the mysterious shadow-net of the dusk. Under his arm were the pistols that he had bought at the gunsmith's shop, in the street near the new exchange. He little thought that Barbara Purcell had been bound for that very place, where steel barrels glistened row by row in the oak racks against the wall. Chance and their meeting had prevented her that day, and her first impulse had been one of anger and impatience. It was not easy to slip away alone and unobserved from the house in Pall Mall. John Gore had marred the first endeavour. She could but pretend tolerance, and hold to that patience that counts upon the morrow. Yet, when he was leaving her as the dusk fell, she felt like one nearing the grim and incredible climax of a dream. It hurt and oppressed her to be near him, and yet there was an indefinable mystery in his nearness that made her heart cry out against the inevitable doom of all desire. Good night. Good night. She felt that he stood and watched her with those grave eyes of his after she had turned from him along the footway, and the shadow of the coming night seemed more apparent to her soul. End of chapter 14